Hey folks, this is the Contextual Insurgent Podcast, and I'm your host, Aaron Smith. I'm an activist, an analyst, a writer, and a sensemaker. I'm a Republican, a former SFGOP Central Committee Delegate, where I was the Deputy Vice Chair of Communications. As California GOP endorsed State Senate candidate, where I managed to win 11% of the vote in San Francisco, which, trust me, is better than average. I've also been involved with the firearms community and Second Amendment rights. I was on the cover of Time Magazine in November of 2018 for the Guns in America issue. But I'm probably best known for my free speech activism and facing off with the hard lefties like Antifa in California and the Pacific Northwest since 2017. The general topic of this podcast series will be politics in the current culture war as seen from my unique, rather hands-on experience and knowledge. But I also intend to include a practical element focused on giving you the conceptual tools to build towards true grassroots, nonviolent political change. You may have noticed lefties usually seem to get what they want regardless of how elections go. I want to help you change that. You can also sign up for my Substack newsletter at contextualinsurgent.substack.com. I have a weekly newsletter that looks back at some of the highlighted stories of the week and gives you some feedback and analysis of what's happening. If you'd like to support my work, I have a Patreon at patreon.com backslash eesmith4. That's the number four. I also have a cash app at dollar sign eesmith4. Again, that's the number four. For the cost of a mocha frappuccino once a month, you can support my work, which is ultimately about helping you. Howdy, everyone. It is June 1st. This is Daily Dispatch number 21. And today I'm going to talk about, well, a couple little things here. We're going to, to, we're going to go over and fisk this American Mind piece that I read the other day. It's really interesting. There's a lot of things in here that you know you've probably heard me kind of touch on before um if you've been a follower from mine for any length of time it's called why is everything liberal uh by richard hanania it's a really interesting piece um you know it's really important you know i think it's very important to read people that you don't agree with but i also think it's important to read people that you do agree with because there's you know it's just because someone agrees with your thesis or or is broadly aligned with you on a lot of topics doesn't mean that they may not have insights you know they may actually have different a different analysis of the problem um you know they they can come to the same conclusion and using a different methodology and that can give you some really interesting insights maybe there's like one or two little pieces that are missing from whatever puzzle you're working on and they've got it sounds like they've got a couple of other pieces that you're missing um and it, you can actually, even though someone who's basically agreeing on the same thing can say some stuff and it sort of just a light bulb comes on. And I, I had that kind of feeling when I read this piece. And before I go off and dive into this piece with my input and thoughts on it, I want to share a little anecdote. And it's going to make sense while the time, by the time we get to the end of it. But I want you to kind of cogitate on this while I'm analyzing the piece. Um, a few years ago, well... Let me let me back up. My dog, if you follow me for any length of time, I had a dog. She passed last year. Her name was Scrimshaw. And she was a pit bull terrier. She was very loving of people and, you know, medium intelligence. She was not a brilliant dog. She was not stupid. She was just basically an average intelligence dog, but she was very focused on people. And, you know, when she when I got her from the pound when she was like four or five months old, you know, I started trying to train her, and one of the things I did along the way was teach her to shake hands. And I was doing that by, you know, doing the whole deal where picking her front paw, making her sit, picking her paw up, and like 
shaking her and telling her to shake and giving her a little treat every time she did it and praising her. And I did that for a while, and you know, eventually she got to the point where you know I'd hold my hand out and tell her to shake, and she would shake, and I'd give her a treat. Well, um, right after she first really kind of got it and was doing it very consistently, um, I was sitting there one day, I cooked myself an Angus hamburger, and I'm sitting at my desk and doing some work, and eating my hamburger, and, and Screamy comes and sits down and looks at me, and she makes eye contact, and she holds her paw out, and I'm like, oh, good girl, good girl, and I shake her hand, and I go back to eating my burger, and she, like, looks at me kind of quizzical, and, you know, holds her paw out again, and I shake her, I'm like, good girl, good girl, and I keep praising her, and she's, like, just looking really confused, like, whatever, you know, for the closest thing that a dog can look to confused when it's not working like they expect, and she keeps holding her paw out, and she does this, like, half a dozen times, and then, like, she just almost looks, like, a little frustrated, and she kind of, like, walks off, you know? She kind of just has that disgruntled dog look when they're not kind of not getting what they want, you know? And she wanders off, and I'm like, God, I wonder what that was about. And I take another bite of my burger, and then it just kind of hit me like a lightning bolt. You know, I was thinking I was teaching my dog to shake hands. But what I was actually teaching her from her perspective was and by the way if you hear a little sound in the background that's my dog my current dog ellie she's you know she's kind of uh stretching she just woke up from a nap but anyway you know i i realized i was teaching my dog scrimshaw i was not teaching her to shake hands because shaking hands doesn't mean anything within the context of what a dog knows and their experience because handshakes are a cultural thing you know they're a thing that we do because in history people would meet and like they would hold their right hand out which was their sword arm and it was like hey I, I approach you you know in peace and that was the whole signal behind that that's something a dog is not going to understand you know she's not going to understand like shaking hands is like a greeting she just knows you know hey I hold my paw out and I get a tasty treat and then one day I'm standing here with a tasty treat in my hand and she's trying to get the tasty treat from me and I'm not giving it to her so she was she was confused by that and the reason the disconnect there really goes back to something called theory of mind and it's a really interesting thing um it's basically theory of mind is just realizing that you know the world has other conscious entities whether they're human or even like you know it turns out like there's some studies and claims that dogs have some kind of a theory of mind themselves about dealing with people of just just understanding that you know there are other conscious entities in the world around us that you know they are self-conscious they're aware they have these emotional states they have like you know emotions they have like you know ideology and thoughts and philosophy and all the states that we feel like they have something similar to or in their own context if they're people they have something very similar to us if they're you know, an animal or something, a smarter animal like a dog, they have more primitive versions of that. So, and that's really the basis for some, for empathy. Like, you know, if someone tells you, I had something good happen to me today, or I had something bad happen, we can think back to things that have happened to us in the past that may be good or bad. And like that, you know, we're like, oh, I remember what I felt like for this to happen. This person feels like this. And that is where empathy comes from. Theory of mind also has more of a, a more complex level. I mean, the empathy is the basic stuff. It's like we can empathize with other people, put ourselves in someone else's shoes, 
emotionally, but it also means like intellectually we can do this. This is the more advanced, more difficult part. It's like where you're literally trying to predict what someone else is trying to do. You know, like, okay, so, you know, if, if I am so-and-so and I'm in this position and X, Y, Z are going to happen, I would do A, B, C, so that's probably what this other person is going to do. It's like when you're playing a game or you're playing poker um, and you're thinking more intellectually, you're trying to analyze the other person, like, as far as, you know, the rational decisions they're going to make. It's not just imagining the emotional aspect. Theory of mind also involves dealing with, like, the rational decision-making that other people are going to do. Like, that's a big part of that. That's a trickier part of it, and it's more complex. Another slight tangent is kind of interesting. Um, you know, we can also do this for animals. And one of the things that in the past, you know, animals have like a very, depending on which one animals they are, there's some suspicions they have a very rudimentary theory of mind as well. Um, like dogs have a very simple part of that. Um, being able to predict emotionally kind of what people are going to do. Um and it's sort of interesting because the animals are able to kind of learn patterns. It's like, you know, the thing is animals aren't as smart as we are. Like dogs are somewhere around like a three to five year old human child, like a toddler. They're not very complex beings, but they do have a very primitive, rational, like problem solving faculty to them. Um, something that happens, one of the earliest examples we have of divination, which is, you know, like like fortune telling almost, you know, predicting like tarot cards and stuff. One of the earliest one of the earliest examples we have of this, uh, the Inuit or the Eskimos, whatever you want to call them, they would, when they were doing caribou hunting, what they found was after they killed a caribou and, you know, cleaned it and ate it and everything and, and were done with it, they would take the scapula, the shoulder blades from the caribou they just killed, and they would put it in the fire and they would burn it and have like a, a ceremony and the cracks in the scapula, what they would they would read those cracks, and they had a, an arcane way of deciphering it, and it would tell them where they were going to hunt next. Um, obviously, it it was not you know connected to where they should actually hunt it. I mean, it would they would make their decision from hunting on whatever the the cracks in the scapula told them. Obviously, it did not have a predictive faculty to it, but what it turns out is the the cracks in the scapula functioned as almost like a random number generator. It was a randomizer. Because, you know, if you've ever been a hunter, you may notice, like, animals do pick up patterns. They do learn very quickly. Um, you know, they're not as smart as us, but being trying to predict what people are going to do is so important to them because it's literally life or death. So, you know, like, if you ever hunted and you'll see a bunch of deer the day before hunting season starts, then suddenly the day of hunting season, all the animals vanish... Well, I mean, they learn that sort of stuff. And that's really what the Eskimo would do, is they would use those scapula as a way to, you know, be completely random and that the caribou could not learn any potential patterns. They weren't doing it consciously, not the Inuit, the Eskimos weren't doing it, but that was what it, you know, the theory that the anthropologists came up with. In the case of my dog, you know, she... Obviously, like I said, she had no idea what a handshake was, so she interpreted it from her perspective. She's probably, you know, she was, you know, probably like a three or four-year-old, like the cognitive level of a three or four-year-old child, not a very complex creature. You know, she had a pattern that she learned, and she interpreted it a certain way from her doggy perspective, 
that you know hey it's it's you know not the handshake part it's like she she made a connection between the treat in my hand and holding her paw out and getting the treat so i mean that and that's really how the theory of mind sometimes can lead you astray it's like it's ultimately you know it's not perfect it's one of those things where we're trying to predict what someone else is going to do but it's always from our own perspective and our own desires and it's very difficult to get outside of our own subjective space like what are our needs what are our desires and it's very very difficult to to try to see that even another human being to try to see what that other person wants to do and what their desires are and it's and that's why a lot of this prediction issues you know there's so much trouble with it even trying to predict what another person does is because you know just different perspective can mislead you so keep that stuff in mind um Maybe a little bit of a non sequitur, but we're going to circle back to it. Let's hop onto this story here that I want to talk about at AmericanMind.org, which is Why is Everything Liberal by Richard Hanania? Um, basically, he says, Cardinal preferences explain why all institutions are woke. Well, let me explain what he means by cardinal preferences. He talks about cardinal, he calls it cardinal utility and ordinal utility. And if you don't know what those, word, what those words mean, like a cardinal direction on a compass is like north, south, east, west. Those are the main directions. And like ordinal directions are the ones in between like southeast, northwest, stuff like that. Um, and this is a lot of stuff. And again, this is why it's important to read stuff, even people that mostly agree with you, because if they come at it from a different angle, you get these really kind of interesting insights. And then if you've been listening to me for any length of time, some of this stuff here is stuff you're going to recognize, but it's just, you know, it's, it's formulated slightly differently. Basically, he's saying the cardinal preferences are, well, let me explain. Ordinal, ordinal utility, he says ordinal versus cardinal utility. And ordinal utility in what he's saying is how many people want something. So, and you know, that's like we're talking about elections. An election is an example of ordinal utility. It's like it's a measure of like what is the number of people that want something. Like this total number doesn't matter how badly they want it, just what how many people want option X versus option Y. Well, you know, that, that tells you how many people want something. It doesn't really tell you how badly they want it. And that's what cardinal utility is. And that's basically cardinal utility is a measurement of how badly people want something and and this is a really good example here where he's talking about you know, like donations it's really interesting like if you look at um last couple elections the predictor of who won had to depend more like you could really tell by the number of people that actually donated to the candidate like in 2016 more people actually like hillary had more money donated to her but she actually had a lower number of donors, like the small donors under $200. Trump had more people actually donating to him. And in 2020, that number was flipped. I think it's a really interesting way to formulate this. And if you, again, if you've listened to me for any length of time, this is, should be familiar, the basic underlying idea, which is, you know, it's not just how what you vote for it's how badly you want it because how badly you want it predicts how hard you're going to work outside of an election you know if you have a hundred people 
and 50 people vote for option A and 50 people vote for option B, well, that's that's your ordinal utility. That doesn't tell you, you know, if the people who vote for option B only vote for option B and they're not willing to work for option B and the people who work for option A are willing to go out and organize and pressure politicians to, you know, work towards option A, well, you know, option A is still going to win even if it's even if option B may win or even if option B is like 51 or 52 and option A is like 48, you know, you may win the election. Option B, B may win the election, but if the people in option A are going to work harder in between elections, they're going to be still be able to influence things. And that's really kind of why people always complain. It's like, why do Republicans win elections? And it seems like the lefties still get what they want. Why, why does, you know, the leftist, so much of their, you know, policy aims still actually come to fruition even even in cases when they lose elections um you know this is like the way i kind of talk about it you know if you remember if you heard me talk about four networks theory um which is basically you know there's four different networks of power in a society there's the political you know network there's like a military network which is also includes like police and like security forces and everything then there's like the economic network, and then there's like an information slash cultural network. And the left really has a huge, you know, influence in like currently in the economic and information network. And, you know, the 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 way the American political system is set up with our constitution, the right tends to have a little bit more um in, intrinsic um strength in the political system just because of the way you know our political system set up the electoral college and the way the senator like the senate is set up you know there's kind of a boost for the right when it comes to politics that you know that doesn't always mean that the right is always the majority obviously it just means that there's a little bit more of a floor and you know that kind of makes up for i don't think they intended it this way the founders, I don't think the founders quite intended it that way, but that's just the way it sort of works out. It's like rural areas have a little bit more electoral weight under our constitution. These are things that, you know, I, I've talked about this stuff before. Um, we have, you know, there's that example that, I, that I've that i mentioned several times of FDR um, during, after his, he won his first election, like in 1933, he had some, people from organized labor come see him i think even before he was sworn in and they pitched to him what what became later became the basis for the new deal or at least some of the um some of the legislation that was part of that and he says gentlemen you convince me now go out there and make me do it and you know that's the two big things there to take away from that is you know that i always say is when you win, if you win an election and you get your candidate in office, you're not you don't you can't just go back to your life, you know. And that's one of the things right wingers just want to delegate political activity to someone else and then worry about their day to day life. You can't really do that. It's like you know you have to when you elect someone, even if the person says, you know, they they have a platform that you like. You have to keep pressure on them. You know, keeping public pressure on a politician, like just just winning, just getting your candidate in office, is is step one. You have to continue pressuring that person. 
Um, you know, just because you, the person wins doesn't mean they're going to always do what you want them to do. That you have to think of them less as someone who's completely reliable and is going to do what I want them to do, and I can go back to my daily life. But versus getting someone office who is an amenable authority, someone who you can pressure, who's intrinsically sympathetic to your point of view. So if you keep pressuring them, that does two things. And this is what FDR was kind of hinting at. If you keep pressuring him or keep pressuring the politician, what you're doing is there's two things there. The first thing is you're making sure they're going to actually stick to what they promised you. You know, if you that's why a lot of people switch. It's like if you're not pressuring them and then the ops, then your opposition is pressuring them, they're going to kind of cave. You know, there's people that that are there's people that are kind of I mean, we all know this. There's there's wobbly people, and if they get pressure from the other side, they'll cave on them. Um, that's step one. You keep them on doing what you want them to do. The second part of that, by pressuring them publicly, you're giving them political cover to stick with what they originally promised to do. Even if they never intended to betray you, just the fact that you're being so loud and pressuring them publicly gives them an excuse to say, hey, you know, look at my, this is what my constituents want. Don't get, don't get mad at me for sticking by what I originally promised. My constituents are pressuring me. And that gives them cover. And that's what FDR was hinting at. He's like, hey, I want you to go out there and make me do it. And I want you to be publicly loud and pressure me to follow through on what I want to do with you, what I promise to do with you. And that will also pressure other wobbly politicians that are kind of on the fence. And, and that's a big part of this. You know, you have these people, the left is, you know, he, he talks about the activism stuff too. And this is a big part of it. You know, we've talked about this before. It, you know, the left has very little problem turning out like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of protesters at the drop of a hat. And this is, you know, there's lots of explanations for this. You know, it seems like generally speaking, right leaning people are more well adjusted and happier and they're less obsessive about these things. Like there, there's, you know, being obsessed with politics is, you know, aligned with neuroticism. People that have some mentally unhealthy aspects. And then you also have, you know, like left lefties are also much more intolerant of people that disagree with them. Um, being more aggressive with what you believe in, being more being more intolerant of people that disagree with you, means you're, you know. Everything being equal, if the numbers are anywhere close, those people have an advantage there. An interesting part of this for running with leftists are because they're you know more obsessed about politics and you know more driven for that, less focused on just living their lives, that they're more likely to do things like try to get involved with running institutions and taking them over explicitly you know, for political purposes, which is, you know, there's the whole conquest second law, which is actually mentioned in here, um, which is any organization that is not explicitly right wing over time will become left wing. And this sort of this also explains, you know, for the longest time, we kind of assumed or it's been an assumption that, you know, business was something that Republicans or conservatives had a lock on. And now we're seeing all the woke institutions the woke corporations, and part of that is because lefties are infiltrating um, media and academia and the opinion-forming parts of society 
that may not necessarily always pay quite as much, but they're more dedicated at, at taking control of things um, versus just making the most for themselves and living their lives. Um, and also, like that's why the corporations, so many corporations are turning woke. It's like it, it do, has to do with cardinal utility. It's like in between elections, the leftist slash you know quote unquote progressive mindset is dominant in most of the institutions. So corporations are going to start drifting that way because they're all about you know ultimately it's not about ideology. It's about optimizing you know. Um, whatever the populace believes, just trying to, you know, make money. And, you know, so if, if you need a rainbow flag corporate logo to, you know, make money during Pride Month, that's what you're going to get. This is the part where the whole theory of mind thing I mentioned at the beginning and asked you to remember is going to start coming into play. You know, the question is, like, where, where do we go from here? You know, what, what, what do right-wingers do? And, you know, so many of the answers are, you know, people are kind of confused by it. They're like, well, we have to start getting involved now. And, like, thankfully I'm seeing more of that. And that's what I've been advocating for a long time. I'm like, you you know, and, like, helping people get involved, motivating them, trying to give them some ideas um, for getting involved locally. That's, you know, I think that's part of it. And, like, he's kind of saying it's like, how do we? What are the reforms that conservatives or right-leaning people can do? It's like, well, you can give government more power over corporations is one, but then you know you've got left-leaning bureaucrats running things. You leave corporations alone, then you've got you know woke capital running stuff. Um, you start your own institutions. You know, well, you know you're probably going to get overrun with leftists if you're not careful. And of course, you know, left owns the media, so they're going to be attacking you the whole way. Um, so yeah, the interesting thing here that's, I think is starting to really dial on to why I actually mentioned the theory of mind thing in the beginning and it explains a lot. Like, you know, we, we've heard accusations of fascism against Trump and the right for like so long. And like, honestly, that's nonsense. Trump is not, Trump is not, and was not a fascist. I mean, he's basically a, you know, your standard issue civic nationalist boomer. Um, I I don't think he's an authoritarian. Like it all. Like I know we. So many people I know have been confused from the beginning. Like why do you think this guy's a fascist? Why are they so freaked out about fascism? And I, you know, David doesn't actually say it. But um, I'm sorry, Richard. Richard doesn't actually say Richard Hanania. He doesn't actually quite mention it this way. But it kind of fits in with some of the other things I've been saying. Um, you know, about why so much of this is projection, you know, um, let me read this. He has a, a passage in here from Scott Alexander. Scott Alexander is the guy from, he's the Bay Area, like left-leaning, uh, psycho psychiatrist who wrote for, you know, Slate Star Codex, which is the rationalist blog that's been around like 15 years. And now he's at Astral Codex 10. He's an interesting guy. Lots of, you know, you know, he, he's left-leaning, but he's an honest left-leaning guy, and you know he pisses off a lot of left lefties, hard lefties, because he's not strictly that ideological. He doesn't allow you know his ideology to you know pollute his what his conclusions are to things. Anyway, so there's a 
uh, review of a biography of the President Erdogan of, of Turkey. And I'm going to read through this and then we're going to, then we'll hash it out really quick. The normal course of politics is various coalitions of elites and populists, each drawing from their own power bases. A normal political party, like a normal anything else, has elite leaders, analysts, propagandists, and managers, plus populist foot soldiers. Then there's an election, and sometimes our elites get in, and sometimes your elites get in, but getting a political party that that's against the elites is really hard and usually the sort of thing that gets claimed rather than accomplished because elites naturally rise to the top of everything. But sometimes political parties can run on an explicitly anti-elite platform. In theory, this sounds good. Nobody wants to be an elitist. In practice, this gets really nasty quickly. Democracies appear numbers game, so it's hard for the elites to control. The populace can genuinely seize the reins of a democracy if it wants. But if this happens, the government will be arrayed against every other institution in the nation. Elites naturally rise to the top of everything. Media, academia, culture. So all of those institutions will hate the new government and be hated by it in turn. Sound familiar? Since all natural organic processes favor elites, if the government wants to win, it will have to destroy everything natural and organic. For example, shut down the regular media and replace it with government-controlled media run by its supporters. The important point is that elite government can govern with a light touch because everything naturally tends towards what they want and they just need to shepherd it along. But popular slash anti-elite government has a strong tendency towards dictatorship because it won't get what it wants without crushing every normal organic process. Thus the stereotype of the right-wing strongman who gets busy with the crushing. So the idea of right-wing populism might invoke this general concept of somebody who, because they have made themselves the champion of the populace against the elites, will probably end up incentivized to crush all the organic processes of civil society and yoke culture and academia to the will of government in a heavy-handed manner. That's an interesting passage, and it explains a lot. You know, I remember when Trump won in 2016, it was fascinating, like, how many people, even, like, gun people, too, just tried to go back and ignore, you know, what was going on. It was like, hey, we won the election. Things are over. Let's go back and ignore politics and culture and society. And, you know, of course, we all know what happened. Trump was immediately under assault, accused of fascism from, like, before day one, being a Russian plant. Like, it was crazy. We, You know, most people did not expect that. I know, honestly, like, I didn't fully expect that. I thought, yes, he's going to get some resistance and and fighting and everything but then eventually after a while yeah they'll give in because he won the election and we learned very quickly like there's an activist class of people that are you know again you know people throw out words like the deep state i hate i hate using that word because it's so polluted these days and so ruined and like that's a very specific term like stuff like deep state or like you know the elites like these words are the colloquialism for these words are, are kind of ruined and even though they had very specific terms back in the day but i like to use james burnham's term the managerialist class which is kind of explains like the act includes the activist class and the bureaucratic class like the peter stroke and the vinman brothers that you know all, all these people that are not elected they're not quite 
appoint they're not appointed people sometimes they're appointing people but the government employees you know the senior executive service folks they can't quite fire and they're not appointed and you know they they still drive a lot of policy um so this is sort of interesting stuff you know these people started immediately resisting trump accusing him of fascism and, and most people most reasonable people are like trump's not a fascist it's absurd um and i think this really comes back to theory of mind on both sides and this is kind of what i'm saying is like you know the part of theory of mind is when you're trying to predict what other people are going to do so much of that is based on what um we see ourselves doing internally if if i was this person what would i do so a lot of the stuff you know when right-wingers talk about this stuff they ask themselves well yeah if i was in that position i, I would not i would accept the president so you know at, at the time that's what right-wingers would mostly say it would piss me off but i would do my duty because america you know rah rah you know let's you know work with the president even though we hate the guy um, like it, it wasn't something most right wingers would think of in 2016 or 2017 to resist the president in the same way Trump was resisted by the establishment types and the managerial class. So because it wasn't something right wing people would do, most of them just did not expect it. And it also sort of explains why so many of the left wing people um, were just freaking out about Trump being a fascist. It's because I think many of them. I mean, a it's 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 people need something to fight for and to fight against, so it, it's important to have. You know, they say um, religion doesn't always need a guy, but it does need a devil, and this cult of wokeness and this progressive mindset needs a devil, and Trump kind of became that devil. But it also sort of explains, it helps explain too. It's like the fact that you know, so many of these people in these establishment in the establishment class knew that. You know, or at least suspected that they understood all this implicitly that the only way to oppose us is to be a fascist like you know i still don't even think that's the right answer but that was that seems like that was their working assumption and this is a working assumption when you look at it and and i've kind of thought about this for a while um you know this is something we in in other stuff we we've kind of touched on but it's interesting when it's vocalized like this because it, it sort of certain things click into focus a lot better um you know they, they this progressive elite international class of people are pushing towards you know they have their ideology that they're pushing and their assumption is the you know, because we control all the institutions um the only way to oppose us is an authoritarian strongman so they just sort of assumed that, you know, Trump has to be that because populism, if the people are opposing, you know, this is also why they talk about, um, you know, if the people are opposing us, that means the only way they can overcome us is through force and through a, a strongman leader. And this also explain this explains kind of why they saw Trump as a fascist and why they Trump kept seeing Trump as an authoritarian and trying to... Um, push him that way it also explains kind of why you know they've been so afraid of populism they keep talking about populism is you know going to destroy democracy and, and it's confusing to most people because you're like what are you talking about it's like populism is like this literally sounds like democracy it's like one of my things i say is like populism is defined as democracy we don't like 
And this sort of helps understand why they're saying it. It's like, populism is when non-elites run things, and the only way non-elites can run things is if they have an authoritarian uh, leadership that will crush the elite class. I think this also explains some of the stuff around, like, Franco and Pinochet. Um, you know, it's like you have a lot of people on the right who make jokes about uh, helicopter rides, which is a reference to Chile and Pinochet. Um, I, I think that really kind of like this heuristic, this model here that we're seeing is like, you know, the left is projecting authoritarianism. So many of this progressive elite is projecting authoritarianism as anyone who opposes them as being authoritarian because I think they know instinctively that that is the historically, you know, most quit the quickest and effective way to actually combat them is, is some type of authoritarian populist strongman. Um, but yeah, it's like the the Pinochet and Franco thing. It also explains a lot about them, not only with the way the right uh, fetishizes a lot of them, but also explains a lot how they ultimately kind of failed. I mean, the thing about Pinochet is, you know. He left Chile in a much better position than it would have been otherwise, especially compared to a lot of South American nations. But, you know, Pinochet died under house arrest. You know, he, you know, left left government, ended up like socialists, still ended up coming and taking power. Um, and he got like, I think he had like 300-something charges against him. And there was a, a bunch of debate at the time in Chile of like, you know, they had a shit ton of charges against Pinochet, and he was under house arrest, and they were trying to figure out if they were wrong, how they were going to try him and for what charges, and he ended up dying because he was old. So yeah, you know, it's like Pinochet ultimately still failed because his enemies took power and arrested him. Uh, Franco, you know, Franco put, I mean, it was, you know, he, he definitely defeated the anarchists and the communists that were terrorizing Spain. Um, but yeah, it's like socialists have power in Spain these days and like they're, they've dug up Franco's grave. So I still think this is, you know, this is an important thing. It's like, you know, just putting a strong man in place is a short term answer. Even when it's, I mean, a, it's like, it's, you know, even when it succeeds, it usually doesn't succeed for the long term. Um, and then B, it's like still, it's like I don't want to, I don't want to have an authoritarian strong man. That's not what I'm. I'd prefer not to have that. Um, so it, it seems like, I mean, there's a lot to take away from it. You know, we have these two groups of people that are fundamentally modeling um, each other compared to their, you know, what they think they need to do to to win. You know, like too many people on the right have even though they think leftists have different values, so many of them still model what leftists want to do by thinking what they would do in their place, which can be good, except if the person has a fundamentally different worldview and motivations, which is what happens. And the left is doing the same. It's like they're looking at the right and not looking at the right, and they weren't looking at Trump and the right as what the right and Trump actually were. It's like, you know, the right in America these days is about, you know, a small government, decentralization, generally speaking. Um, 
I don't think the right actually wants a strong man. But the left has sort of projected that on the right because the, the left assumes, looking back at past history, um, that the situation that they're in now, the most, the quickest and most effective way to defeat them in the short term at least, is an authoritarian popular strongman. But I don't want that either. And I think this comes back to, you know, we have to figure out a way. I mean, I, I feel like this is changing. I feel like a lot of right-leaning people are starting to understand. It's like, holy shit, we cannot sit back and let the left run everything. We cannot we cannot just turn our backs on society and let these leftist busybodies embed themselves in everything. So, yeah, I'm going to wrap this up here. Um, but, yeah, you know... I, I've got some some couple pieces coming out in Be Ready magazine next month. Look out for those. Um, this is a thing where we have to start building locally. Like I, I honestly think, um, who knows who knows how much longer this government's going to be able to last. Um, I I feel like um, the elite we have right now are not actually that smart. Um, and this this goes back to what I said before about the election. You know, we we if you look at what happened in 2020, look at you know the stops they had to pull out to accomplish what they did, and how you know ideally a government should should rule or or an elite class should rule with a light touch. You know, it's like they said in like in here, it's like it the government should rule with a light touch, the ruling elite class should rule with a light touch. Ideally, you know, you don't want to expose yourself like the way they did. It was like it was a it was almost like the tech industry and the you know, we had a we had a, a business coup two point You know, we had the tech industry, the the military industrial complex basically all combined in front of everyone and just nakedly um influenced the election. They ended up bragging about it in Time magazine, that piece about fortifying the election. Um that's really weakness. I mean, that's when you have to do that, that's desperation. And you look at what they did, look at what they had to do to accomplish that. And they still, you know, lost seats in the House. And, like, look at the House and the Senate. It's razor-thin margin. Um, I don't think that's strength. I think that's desperation and weakness at some level. And I, what I, my sense is people are kind of, everyone kind of knows what happens. And you look at what ha- happens with, covid last year it's like now the whole consensus on that is collapsing um people are starting to realize i don't i don't actually think that it's a bioweapon um i do think that there's a very high likelihood that it did escape from a lab in wuhan i think there's a very good chance it was gain of function modified i don't think it's a bioweapon that's a that's a different thing there there's two different things Anyway, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna segue into that on this one. I'll have another piece where I'll talk about that. Um, anyway, yeah. So this is a good piece. AmericanMind.org. Why is everything liberal? Um, pretty good insight. You know, it talks about a lot of stuff we've talked about before or touched on. But it it again, it talks about the things that we've touched on in a slightly different way and from a different perspective, which gives some really interesting insights. Go check it out. American Mind's a great. Um, that's a great site. Lots of good people write for it. Um, really, there are a bunch of people. I think the the new right that's going to potentially change stuff. The nucleus, I think, of this runs through American Mind. Um, lots of very smart, driven people there. Um, 
they're not just um, yokels. There's intelligent people, but they're also willing people that are willing to do things and go out and work. Um, there's something here. I'll link to it in the description. Um, newfounding.org. It's kind of a network for a lot of right-wing folks that are looking at changing things. And you know, anyway, I'll link that in there. Go, go, click on the link and check it out. It's a pretty good deal. All right, well, I'm going to let y'all go today, and I will have another one coming out soon. Thank you so much.